KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Can't help it, true. I can't help it. I can't help the fact that I love John Waters. And even though I spoke with him last December about his Christmas show, I'm doing another podcast about him because Film Out San Diego is screening his 1977 film Desperate Living on Saturday, April 9th at 3 p.m. at the Museum of Photographic Arts in Balboa Park. Here's the trailer from Desperate Living. It's contagious. It's outrageous. It's John Waters' Desperate Living, starring Hollywood sex goddess Liz Renee. Susan Lowe as androgynous Mole McHenry. If you don't give me a sex change, I'll cut off your Peter and throw it on me myself. And Mink Stoll as hysterical outpatient Peggy Gravel. Get out of here, you stinking piece of flesh. Yes, they've all had a lot of desperate living. Ah! Oh, God! Find them, feel them, fuck them, forget them. Is that your new motto? A man trapped in a woman's body. Follow the dead end road to Mortville, USA. Around you, it's a village of idiots. John Waters boasts that in regards to his film Desperate Living, an official censor in London wrote, we do not know how to deal with the subject of intentional bad taste. And that's precisely what Waters banks on. No one in the history of American cinema has done more for bad taste than Waters. And his cinematic legacy may be that he brought trash to the level of art. The screening is a perfect excuse for me to dig back into the dusty interview archives to pull out some pearls of wisdom from the man known as the Sultan of Sleaze, the Prince of Puke, and the King, or possibly the Queen, of Schlock, titles he proudly wears. I interviewed Waters back in 1997 when he was re-releasing Pink Flamingos. Questions and answers! Do you believe in God? I am God! You are God! You are God! (laughs) Is there no wrong? There is right and there is wrong. I have never been wrong, Mr. Goldstein. Do you expect to get new followers with this publicity? I certainly hope so, Mr. Kazan. I didn't invite you here to jerk off, you know. Get this all down. Don't miss one single word. Suppose we decide not to print this story, Mr. Vine. What then? Mr. Vader. See there? Does that answer your question? I have your address. And I know you have a wife and child, is that correct? Yes. Well, if nothing is printed, we might be in the mood for a barbecue. Get what I mean? A human barbecue. End of question and answer period. Proceed with the execution. Born in Baltimore in 1946, Waters grew up in a comfortable conservative Catholic family. He knew from an early age that he wanted to make movies, and he began by making a pair of Super 8 films. Hag in a Black Leather Jacket in 1964, and Roman Candles in 1966. Then he borrowed money from his father to produce Pink Flamingos, which was billed as an exercise in poor taste. While the content of Pink Flamingos, incest, exhibitionism, singing anuses, and eating dog crap, were a direct challenge to the standard Hollywood fare, Waters' approach to filmmaking relied on a Hollywood dynamic, 
He insisted on a straightforward narrative plot, emphasized entertainment over enlightenment, and built a stable of stars that rivaled Hollywood in a most outlandish fashion. By embracing these Hollywood trappings, he foreshadowed his eventual move into the industry, where he proved highly successful with films like Hairspray, Crybaby, and Serial Mom. This is the story of Beverly Sutphin. Scramble eggs, anybody? A devoted mother. I'm so happy I could chip. You know how I hate the brown word. A loving wife. You think the kids are awake? We could be very quiet. I'm ready. Honey, you're hot tonight. And a suspected murderer. Oh, kids, are you doing your homework? How did America's number one mom turn into one of America's most wanted? Is she really guilty? Are you a serial killer? Chip, the only serial I know anything about is Rice Krispies. But with Pink Flamingos, Waters made an audacious bid for attention and got it. But the film was more than just an attempt to shock. It was an all-out satiric assault on the middle-class values that Waters saw as oppressive and hypocritical. Gentlemen of the press, get ready, because you are about to witness the biggest news event of the year. Live homicide. Connie Marble, you stand convicted of assholism. The proper punishment will now take place. Look pretty for the picture, Connie. That's it. The film lobbed a cocktail Molotov in the cultural war of the 60s and early 70s. But what made Waters unique was the joyous quality of his work and the wicked delight he took in trashy obscenity. Waters' revelry at smashing establishment values and championing social misfits made his films irresistible to all but the most puritanical. Who can resist the gleeful and absolutely defiant 300-pound divine decked out in a flamboyant outfit and strutting down a Baltimore street to the strains of The Girl Can't Help It? Can't help it, the girl can't help it. She got a lot of what they call the most. Can't help it, the girl can't help it. The girl can't help it, she was born to please. Can't help it, the girl can't help it. This is an outsider flaunting his nonconformity with pride. Waters' early films revealed a keen eye for social observation and genuine compassion for the outsider. He would hone these skills to perfection in Hairspray in 1988. Baltimore, 1962. The heyday of hairdos and hair don'ts. We shall overcome someday. Not with that hair, you won't. Heartthrobs and hefty girls. Mama, welcome to the 60s. Here's my interview with Waters from 1997. He spoke to me from his beloved Baltimore and reflected on Pink Flamingos, the film that brought him into the spotlight and gave trash cinema a good bad name. First of all, I wanted to find out what prompted this re-release of Pink Flamingos. Well, the, the filth was rotting in the can and it begged to be let out, I think. <laughs> I, I pitched this kind of to Bob Shea, who's the head of New Line Cinema, who I've known for a long, long time, even when New Line Cinema was a, cinema was a tiny little company in New York that had three movies. I think it was Reefer Madness, Pink Flamingos, and an obscure Godard film. And that's when I first went to them. So Pink Flamingos was a big part of their history, and I knew that the 25th anniversary was coming up. And I knew that I had this footage that was kind of no one had ever seen before, whole scenes that were cut out of the movies, Mm -hmm. subplots and stuff. So I pitched it to them as having the 25th anniversary as a good way to get a new video release and to get it it back in the uh, eye of the public. 
I didn't even realize at the time that all these other movies were going to be coming out. So it turned out perfectly as sort of a spoof of the Star Wars and all this, <laughs> all this good taste that's coming out. It, it sort of just worked out that way. It was an idea I had, not realizing that a lot of other movies, of course, the kind of movies that are coming out now are always like seem like the Garden of Finzi Contini and Alfred Hitchcock and all these so much good taste that I thought we had to put it would be a good idea now I realized to put out sort of a bad taste movie also to re, to remember that that came out 25 years ago too I'd like to close with the original trailer New Line Cinema used to sell Pink Flamingos notice no footage from the actual movie is ever shown did you happen to hear about it? From some friends who saw it and thought it was absolutely marvelous. Probably, I'll be very insulted. Rex Reed, Reed told us that it's uh, fabulous. Would you come out at midnight to see it? Why go home at midnight? What are you going to see there? I love religious movies. <laughs> a little gross, but I liked it. Well, it was uh, really the grossest film I'd seen. I think John Waters has got his <laughs> finger on the pulse of America. I think he's got his thumb securely up America's ass. I enjoy dirty things as much as everyone else's, but this isn't even dirty. It's just disgusting. So does this mean we're going to get the um, filthiest people in the world song in Pig Latin put yeah. back in? Yeah, it's one of the outtakes that comes on at the end. <laughs> so have you, been, have you been holding on to all these reels then for 25 years? Well, they've been in my attic, you know, and actually when, when, when they did the, the new version of the film, they, they did a new blow-up, uh, they re-scanned the film, they re-digitalized the sound. I mean, it still looks terrible, it's Pink Flamingos, <laughs> but still it looks as good as it will ever look. So I always had this footage, but I hadn't even seen it myself for 25 years. I was just, and when I actually went and screened the whole thing, I, I forgot some of it. A lot of it was like I could barely remember writing it or shooting it, and I showed it to uh, Mary Vivian Pierce, who played Cotton in it, and she didn't even remember shooting one of the scenes. So we all want to go on Oprah's recovered director's memory. and go on. It's, it's a new thing, I think. We made these, these this part of the movie, but no one can remember doing it. So then what would be the banner headline for this with the new restored scenes? How would you be promoting that? Well, I think, what yes, what they are is the, it, it's not a director's cut because you can see why this, all these subplots were cut out. It made the movie too long. But afterwards, if you know the movie... And it's, I think, nice to see new whole scenes with Divine and Edie. And, and also, they're cut shorter because I'm sort of the human cutaway. I set them up. You know, I come on at the end and say, hello, I'm John Waters. I'd like to introduce this new footage that I found in my attic. So, um, in a way, it goes hand in hand with kind of the no smoking thing I did years ago. You know, it, mm-hmm. I'm kind of a narrator in, in that kind of spirit. So did you also feel that a new generation just needed to be exposed to Pink Flamingos on the big I screen? Did, uh, and I think... What I'm proud of is that the film still works, and it hasn't mellowed. While it's sitting up there in my attic, the bile has not mellowed. It maybe is even ruder than it ever was, do with now with political correctness and all that kind of thing. (laughs) Things have changed. I mean, it was 25 years ago, it was shocking to have a plot where they sold babies to lesbian couples. Today, that's politically correct. Mm -hmm. So so some things have, have changed, but certainly... Divine's makeup <laughs> remains still, I think, the most, uh, the best look a drag queen could ever have. Well, I really admire the fact that even after 25 years, it still can offend people. I mean, there's still scenes that I probably couldn't describe on the radio because. Well, I, you know, everybody talks about the final scene being the most repellent, but mm-hmm. the artificial insemination scene is probably the rudest scene <laughs> in the movie. So, do you still get complaints about the film? 
Well, the film even got busted um, in Florida in a video shop about five years ago. Really? Yeah, what happens is, you know, families go out and they say, oh, we love Hairspray. Let's get another John Waters movie. And they see something called Pink Flamingos. That's why we, we very very much wanted and got this time an NC-17 rating mm-hmm. because uh, the last video release didn't have any relate. It was unrated. Mm-hmm. And so some video shops don't know what it is and they just put it in the comedy section. <laughs> And then some unsuspecting family goes home and rents the movie, and then they call the police, which to me, I don't understand. I mean, why don't they just turn it off? Mm-hmm. That's what I did, you know, when Forrest Gump started running. I mean, <laughs> but no, they, they, they feel that they must stop it like a disease. Well, I thought it was interesting when I went to look for your film at the video store to watch it again. I thought, oh, it must be under like midnight movies or cult movies, but now you're in alternative lifestyles. Well, that's funny. Used my favorite was I used to see it in foreign, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was the best. <laughs> Do they consider Baltimore foreign or just? Yes, the... <laughs> it was like you know, it was all foreign language movies and Pink Flamingos. I guess that was their attempt to try to figure out where to classify, because putting it in the X-rated section is, is really doesn't work unless mm-hmm. really something's the matter with you. You know, I don't think it's a marital aid for many people. <laughs> I read once that you said your film was obscene, but in a joyous way. Yeah, I think it is. Do you think that's what offends people? Pardon? Do you think that's what maybe what offends people the most? (laughs) I think that's what makes it popular, Mm -hmm. and that's why people like it. I think joyously obscene can be wonderful and is a celebration. Real obscenity is nasty and makes you feel bad about yourself. I think Pink Flamingos makes you feel good about yourself. I do. I, I think it's. I think it's a happy movie. I mean, it's a very Catholic movie in some ways. I mean, it's very obvious there's good and bad, and the people and the, and the good guys win, and the villains are punished. It's a very moral movie. Well, I think what probably offends some people is that you make so so much. You make like Divine's family seem so normal. I mean, you present it as so acceptable that I think that's what a lot of people may find the most <laughs> offensive. <laughs> yes, it, it is. I mean, and they're happy with their filthiness. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, they're they aren't. They aren't judging anybody else. They aren't bothering anybody. They're they're living they're living by themselves in bliss, basically, and mm-hmm. they're attacked by people who are jealous and judge them. And I think, in a way, that that divine, you know, it's never revealed that divine is a man. Never mm-hmm. in any of my movies was it revealed that divine was a man. He was a character actor. He just happened to play women sometimes. I think that it's peculiar. Yes, I mean people, but people never seemed to. They always laugh during the, you know, when divine is actually having an affair with her son in the movie. Mm-hmm. But her son is really into her traveling companion. As long as she watches him, he's an exhibitionist for her voyeurism. So it's so complicated. <laughs> that it's sort of beyond perversity into into kind of a special happiness that could only really take place in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were making your first film today, do you think you could make a film like Pink Flamingos and find an outlet for it? Certainly, I think you could, yes. I think it might be even easier. Mm-hmm. Well, the difference is then there were, there were more venues to show that kind of thing. But the difference is today, you, there wouldn't be. You, it would just be shown in the Angelica Theater in, in New York, mm-hmm. right where this is going to open. But the problem is you'd have to have a large budget for advertising, which um, at the time, Pink Flamingos had no advertising. It was totally sold on word of mouth. So that's the very different thing today, that no matter what the film is, it would have to be promoted. Where then, audiences were so adventuresome that they would uh, look out, even go out in the middle of the night and everything, to try to find a movie that that would surprise them. And I'm not so sure with video that that would happen today. It also seems, though, that independent film, the budgets are so much bigger now that it would seem harder to just... 
No, no. no? Still, I mean, look at Hustler White, or look at that. <laughs> Certainly, there's still movies that are made for very, very mm-hmm. little money that do get attention. There's more outlets. I mean, when when I made Pink Flamingos, you couldn't go to film school and make that kind of movie. Now you most certainly could. You could make it your treatise. You could do. You could make it. <laughs> but then you would fail. Mm-hmm. The difference that you wouldn't have been allowed to then. Mm-hmm. Think, times are very, very different. I think it's much more open to to any kind of film today. The difference is then there were more taboos. Mm-hmm. The taboos that are in Pink Flamingos still are taboos today. I mean, that's why I'm saying that I'm proud of the film, that it still does work on a level of, I made that movie for an audience that thought they had seen everything, and mm-hmm. wanted them to laugh, the fact that they hadn't. And um, it's pretty harmless, the film, if you really consider what is the big shock in it. But I've even shown it when I taught in prison to a class of all murderers, and they ran out of the room and told me I was insane. <laughs> <laughs> Did you take that as a compliment? Well, it was it shocked me at first because I thought, boy, you're so touchy here, considering these are like murderers and rapists and stuff, and they're and they're telling me I'm crazy because I have a scene, you know. I, but it was strange. I, I it shocked me. I think it made me mm-hmm. laugh, kind of. <laughs> Today, when you've got all these shock jocks, and you've got all these people confessing everything on on talk shows. Do you think that you have to find another way to shock people or a different approach than... Well, no, but the problem is... Well, the problem with that is they're trying to shock people as their first goal. That was not my first goal in Pink Flamingos. My first goal was to make you laugh at being shocked, and I, mm-hmm. there's a big, big difference in that. I've talked for years about good, bad taste and bad, bad taste, and, and here's where I think that where that comes into play. That bad, bad taste to me is... Um, is not very witty, and is trying first to only be repellent. Where Pink Flamingos was taking being repellent and turning it into a style that I think basically was in some kind of good taste in a way. How did your parents react to it when it came out? My parents have still never seen the movie, but my father paid for it. I paid him back with interest, and I think he was totally a shock to get his money back. <laughs> They, I told them it was coming out again. My father's 80, and he said, oh, no. I mean, they were horrible that we have to live through that again. You know, that was 25 years ago. You know, my mother joked and said, maybe we'll die first. She actually said <laughs> So, and then my sister told me that they said, well, maybe I guess we have to go see it this time. And I said, no, you really don't. I mean, why make them go see that movie? I think that's the thing that's changed the most is kids come up to me now and say, my parents showed me Pink Flamingos. Well, my generation's parents sure would have never done that. But they were basically supportive of you? Supportive, yes, always. Even though they were scared stiff of it and horrified by it and everything they believed in these movies defied. But at the same time, I think they knew that at least I knew what I wanted to do and I was very passionate about it. So I look back on that and realize how much they really loved me by doing that. I mean, at the time, I didn't. I thought, oh, God, they're my parents. Why shouldn't, shouldn't they? You know. But now I look back and see how really incredibly supportive they were. And I think that was whatever degree I have of mental health these days is because of that. <laughs> um, do you ever think there's a line that you wouldn't cross? Or do you look especially to find that and then push it a little further? No, there's certainly I would never do real violence. I have no interest in mm-hmm. that. Um, I love fake violence. I hate real violence. Certainly, that's the, that's the main one. I would never have anyone really be hurt or kill anybody. Or I'm no interest in snuff movies. I'm no interest in in any kind of real violence. Are you disappointed if your films don't provoke some kind of controversy? Well, no. I mean, certainly, I I didn't expect Crybaby to to. Uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. None of them were made with that initial thing. Well, I guess in the beginning, I guess Pink Flamingos, I knew that there was going to be controversy and. 
but it was a very different time. It was a time when there was kind of like a cultural war going on, and you felt it. It was us versus them, and the reviewers were them. The outraged review were a big help to my films. I don't mm-hmm. think that would happen today. I don't think reviewers would. They all think they're too hip to admit that they were shocked by something. <laughs> I know that the ad campaign that we're releasing, the new campaign, is all negative reviews. We have one sheet. <laughs> the original negative reviews that are that are pretty funny now when you see them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your feelings about Hollywood now that you've done some films within the system to a degree? Well, they've all been, you know, well, that's not new. Certainly, uh, Hairspray was made. In the, mm-hmm. Polyester was made within the Hollywood system. In a way, it was New Line Cinema. But still, I mean, they tested the movie. I had to raise the money. It's the same thing. I think there's there's not a huge difference anymore between independent and Hollywood. I mean, it's still hard for me to get movies made. It's never easy. But at the same time, it's easier now for me when I go in and pitch a studio, if, whether it be an independent or a real studio, than it used to be when I'd have to go out and just try to borrow money from eight lunatics to have $10,000. At least now when I go to the studios, I know they have the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that isn't the issue. It's kind of the same. I guess it's gotten easier in some way that I, that I know the business and I know how it works. But it is never hard. I mean, my last movie fell through at the last minute. Cecil be demented. So it's, it's not like I can make any movie I want still. Mm-hmm. And that's because I write and direct. And that's the hardest movie to get made because the studios know if you wrote it, that you control it. Uh, that's why they want always want me to direct movies that I didn't write, so they can control it, but I never do. <laughs> do you think you you have like two groups of fans, those who really love your early stuff and those who know you from your more recent works? Or I think you... I have three groups. I think I have, most importantly, the one, hopefully, that like both. There are a few diehards that want me to make Pink Flamingos over and over, but I think if I ever tried to, it wouldn't work, and I, it would be unsuccessful. Certainly, there are people that only know me from Hairspray on. Those are the people that will be horrified when they go to see Pink Flamingos when it comes out. Because they'll say, they'll go, too. They'll say, oh, I've heard that's the wild one. But they don't quite know how wild. Uh (laughs) So that kind of, yeah, I mean, there are people like elderly woman came up to me in the supermarket and said, I love all your movies. And I said, you liked multiple maniacs? And she said, well, no, I actually didn't see that one. (laughs) As long as people like any of them, I'm happy to tell you the truth. I mean, that's these days when you make a movie, if somebody likes any of them, it's fine with me. It doesn't matter which one. Do you like to watch your films with an audience? I don't. Yes, in the beginning I do, but I, then I certainly don't watch them by myself. Pink Flamingos I hadn't seen in a long time, and um, then I had to spend the whole week watching it every day when we did the blow up and put the music back in, you know, all that, and the last. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, first it was fun, but at the end it was torture. But then it premiered at Sundance, and that was fun, seeing it with a new audience again and seeing the new footage and everything. Yeah, I like to see it with an audience in the beginning. Then I like to move on to the next one. What was it like when you actually made the film? How were you shooting it? Were you you shot like on weekends or something or sporadically? I shot even like maybe, I don't know why, because nobody worked. Nobody <laughs> had real jobs, so I don't know why we would have waited for a weekend. I can't remember. It's sort of a blurry area, maybe one day a week or something. And mm-hmm when I'd get the money together to do it. And I wrote it kind of as I went along. I mean, I knew the end, but sometimes people would get hit. The, the dialogue was always handwritten, and, and then, you know, on that kind of paper with that, what do you call it? Um, they didn't even have Xeroxes then. <laughs> I think it was more like... Uh, oh, mimeograph? Yes, that's what it was written on. 
and it was filmed on the. They didn't have video then. This is what news teams used to use. It was sound on film, mag strike, sixteen. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and that's what it was shot with. And that's why there's such long takes because you couldn't cut because every time you made a cut, the sounds had to overlap twenty four frames there. So it was almost like filming a play at the time. And it was filmed at a friend of mine who had lived in the country, and there was a woods that nobody was around. That's where the trailer was. And we got it at a junkyard and. And it was very hard. It was free. You can see people's breath all the way through them. It was freezing cold. And poor Edie's sitting there in a girdle and a bra and a playpen. And it was 10 degrees out. It was a very, very hard movie to make. But we were all young. So um, mm-hmm. all movies are hard to make. And when you're young, you can make them even harder. <laughs> what was it like editing? How did you, did you do that at home? I did it myself in my attic, you know. And it was... And the gods were watching over me because I had no work print. I had every time, this is how I edited it, I would make a, a hot splice and then to look at it, put it in the projector. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was no work print. <laughs> and it's not scratched. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that is possible. I mean, I turn in my work print today and it looks, you can barely see it by the time I make the final print of a movie. There's so many scratches. And I, I re-looked at it millions of times, too. So... I, you know, I don't know if you ever tried to do it that way, it would never work. But I didn't know any better. How did you find Divine? Divine lived, well, I lived down the street from my parents. I used to see him every day when he had a different color hair when he was waiting for the bus. And my father would, like, you know, tremble and rage. And I thought, God, it's, I'd have to meet this person. So I met him through a girl that I knew that I used to see because she had a bleach blonde beehive that had turned green from clothing in the swimming pools, and she had mosquito bites on her ankles, and I'd see her mowing the lawn in, like, short shorts with a beehive. And she knew Divine because I used to gamble for pimple medicine and play cards because <laughs> Divine always used to wear Clearasil on his lips, his white lipstick. <laughs> That's how I met him. He lived up the street. And what was your uh, working relationship like? Well, it was a very good one, I think. In the, in the beginning, I don't think Divine ever believed that anything was going to happen from these movies at all. Um, he used them. He didn't even quite get it, I mean, in the beginning. I mean, because in the very, very beginning, Divine was an, a, a real drag queen for about two seconds until I really got a hold of him because then other drag queens hated him immediately because they knew that we were making fun of drag queens because drag queens were really very, very square, man, and they all wanted to be like Miss America and wear mink coats and be, you know, and Divine obviously made fun of that image. I mean, here was somebody that was fat and proud of it, which no drag queens were. Divine wasn't a drag queen. And at the end, even in Hairspray, when he looked like that, he said no drag queen would ever allow themselves to look like this. (laughs) I mean, he was a character actor. Mm -hmm. And I think Divine had a lot of built-in rage. I mean, he was really hassled in high school and everything. And um, I think he used that. I think being Divine, the character gave him an outlet for that. And I think I had a lot of rage, too. And the two of our rages turned into whatever the character was that was Divine in the film. Because Divine never walked around looking like that or anything. That that was a part he played. He didn't Mm -hmm. dress like that or anything in real life. (laughs) Who came up with the great costumes for him? Smith, who did all the costumes for all my movies. Mm -hmm. um, He still does. I think he does a great job. The infamous final scene with the dog. How did you come up with that? You know, it was it was just something I knew in the very beginning. I said, would you read dogs? And I said, oh, yeah, and it was was no big thing. You know, that's the scariest thing about it is then it was really not a big deal to us. What you are about to see is a real thing. I shot it as a way. It was pot humor is what Mm -hmm. it was, really, I think. 
And um, I saved it. It was the very last thing we did in the whole movie. And you know the story. Do you really want me to tell it again? <laughs> I told it so many times. I could go in. I tried to think up a new way. I mean, we followed the dog around. It was my friend Pat Moran's dog. She fed it for like three days and didn't let it out. And it still wouldn't go. We kept following it around and kept following it around. And finally, we had to give it an enema with a hair dye applicator bottle. And then it just did a little, a little turn to said, that little thing. And I said, yeah, we're losing the light. we got to do it. So he just did it, you know, and it was over. And I remember looking through the viewfinder of my little pitiful little 16-millimeter silent camera and, and just realizing that it was a surreal moment in our lives. And the very first time I ever saw it with an audience, I knew that it, that it really worked. It worked beyond whatever I could imagine. But even then, I didn't think 25 years later I would be talking about it. <laughs> And Divine eventually got weary from of talking mm-hmm. about it, you know, because he could never... People were scared of him his entire life because he did that. It worked too well. I mean, people were mm-hmm. really frightened of him. They thought that he really did live in that trailer and killed people <laughs> and ate shit all day. And was, You know, they thought that for real because the film was so cheap-looking that it looked like a documentary almost. It looked like... That, you know, you stumbled into the woods and these people were living in this trailer like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something. And I believed that's why Divine eventually got weary of it, because people couldn't ever get beyond it. Actually, when I rented the film, somebody said, oh, yeah, isn't there that scene at the end where he eats the, you know, dog excrement? And I said, yeah. And he goes, but that's not real, right? And I said, no, it's one take. And he's like, no way. <laughs> I mean, it still. Hollywood would spend like a fortune and do all the computer graphics <laughs> and everything. But... That's why even Twister, I like special effects that aren't seamless. Mm-hmm. You know? So here, yeah, you see it. I mean, it's one take. It's, um, it, it really didn't cost a lot of money. And if Hollywood did it, it would have. Mm-hmm. The difference. Reality is, is worse than anything you can ever <laughs> imagine. You're one of the few directors who I think are um, as well-known as their films in terms of if somebody sees a picture of you, almost everyone recognizes you immediately. Well, I think in the beginning it was a way of, you know, we didn't have any money for advertising. We mm-hmm. we tried to think of ways to get people to see our movies. And and it started out because I used to introduce my movies, and that was a way, you know, mm-hmm. getting, just being some marketable way to get people to see our movies. And I would come out and talk, and then I'd introduce, introduce Divine, who would come on stage pushing a shopping cart and throwing dead mackerels into the audience. <laughs> That's how we used to travel. And I think it was, you know, it was just kind of like some kind of twisted showmanship, a way to get people to identify and come see the movies because we didn't have any money for anything else. Same way I didn't have stars, so I turned my friends into the stars. You become kind of like this Emily Post of bad taste. And Do you ever get tired of people interviewing you and just like wanting your reaction to a bunch of different things just to kind of... No. No. <laughs> To see if you can come up with one of your, to say something shocking or... No, because I don't try to, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and, you know, I think that when the beginning it was more like that. Sort of, I think, when Pink Flamingos first came out and I used to go to the colleges, people thought I was like that, too. You know, they would uh, they would show up with drugs and show up with all this stuff, and i think, oh, great, I'm going to get arrested. They're going to think, no one's going to ever believe that this isn't me, you know. No, I don't think so much, so much that people really believe that I'm like, mm-hmm. they know, I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years, so if I was that crazy, I, I couldn't pull it off, I don't think, you know? Mm-hmm. But in some ways, I mean, it comes to, like, I played myself on The Simpsons last night. I mean, so in some ways, it has turned into a whole other thing that um, is funny in a different way, I think. I mean, certainly I've, you know, I've, maybe I've become a cartoon character, that's okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> I always wanted to be one when I always wanted to be a Disney villain when I was a child. So this is second best. Is there still a chance you could be a Disney villain? I'd want it. If I was in the Disney film, in a way, it was certainly the the, the one in the, what's the one, The Little Mermaid? What's the one called? Um, the Little Mermaid? And even the uh, animators said it was divine. I mean, they even said it in all the interviews. And in there, divine is, there is, divine's in it. They even said that. <laughs> he would have wanted money, though. <laughs> <laughs> what about the uh, Simpson role that you just mm-hmm. took on? How did that come about? They just called my agent and asked me. So I said, sure. You know, hey, they asked Elizabeth Taylor. It's good enough for her. It's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> did you have anything to do with the, the plot or no. the... No? <laughs> Read it, certainly. And no, you do the, you do it I did that seven months ago, and then they animated after you do it. Mm-hmm. So no, it was fun. I mean, it was just a uh, something else. You know, I I, I figure um, I don't know. You can never have too many careers. <laughs> <laughs> You're kind of a self-confessed uh, trial freak. Not anymore. Not anymore. Well, it, I was just wondering how you liked Jay the past ruined, few years. OJ ruined that. You know? <laughs> um, I used to go to the mall. Then I started teaching in prison. It sort of turned into that, and then I taught in prison for a long time until the prisons took all their education. make a film about a real-life crime or trial? Yeah. What do you think Serial Mom is about? <laughs> what do you think? Uh, Pink Flamingos has a trial scene in it. Uh, no, but I mean like yeah. a real-life so, one. I mean, real one, no. But certainly I, I've used it. I don't think I'll ever do another. I've used it so much in all my movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, in those three movies, they all have trials in them. And uh, so that influence, I, that obsession is used up, maybe. I've, I've written about I've made movies about that so many times in the past. I was just wondering if you... If you preferred creating everything yourself or if yeah. you would use something from... No, I don't need a real one, although certainly real ones have had influences. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, no, I tried to go to a trial recently. It was a Baltimore case that you all, you know, nobody would know about except you lived here. But I, when I went in, like, the news teams came over and people said, are you making a film? And the <laughs> jurors were staring at me. And I, I just realized I can't really do this. Now, I could go to a big national one because there's lots of famous people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. A local one, it was too weird. And I felt bad. I thought I would hurt the person that was on trial in some weird way. Because people would think, oh, that creeps here. This person really must be guilty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, they could think that. So I felt awkward. And I just mm-hmm. never went back. Uh, do you have a project that you're working on right now? Yeah, it's called Pecker, and it's finished, and it's about a kid that works. That's his nickname because he picked it as food as a child, and he works in a sandwich shop in in Baltimore, and he accidentally gets turned into an art star in New York and how it totally screws up his life. (laughs) Uh, The script's done. It was developed by New Line Cinema, and I'm waiting to hear if they're going to let me make it. I'm Uh, hoping to shoot it in the uh, spring, so it's right. I mean, I'm going to find out this week, actually. Who are the people that you would most like to work with right now? Oh, I never tell that because that's who they're going to be. You know, I'm going to, every time I get the... You know, I don't want to, it's a bad luck to talk about something right when it's about to happen, you know. I certainly don't do stunt casting anymore. I did that sort of peak that with Crybaby. Um, mm-hmm. I like to use just really good actors. Um, that's the only way I have left to shock people, I think, is to, is to use, like Sam Waterston, who would have ever thought he would be in a John <laughs> You know what I mean? I, I think I did that in Crybaby, and I'm very, I love the cast of Crybaby, but mm-hmm. I don't want to do something once I've done it. I think if people expect it, I try to confuse them a little by not doing it again. Mm-hmm. Same way I would never be in my own movie again after I did that once in Hairspray. 
Does it bother you that some of the people or some of the values that are you're criticizing, that those people are now kind of embracing your films? Well, no, it's just another moment of irony and life <laughs> leaden with irony. Um, I mean, you know, I realize I'm the establishment now. Clinton maybe has seen one of my movies. There's probably a president now that's possible he could have seen one of my movies. <laughs> so, no, I find it even more ironic and even funnier in a, in a very, very strange way. I mean, when I was in Sundance, all these kids come up and call me sir, you know. It's nothing more depressing than being called sir in a non-sexual way. <laughs> What kind of advice would you give to, to young filmmakers like that who come up to you? Well, they don't need it anymore. My, put violence and sex in your movies, and they all do anyway. They don't need me to tell them that anymore. They've learned. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you, and um, good talking to you. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast featuring my 1997 interview with John Waters. His film Desperate Living will be screening in San Diego on April 9th at 3 p.m. at the Museum of Photographic Arts in Balboa Park. The screening is being sponsored by Film Out San Diego, along with Horrible Imaginings Film Festival and the Film Geeks at the Digital Gym Cinema. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, where you can also leave a review. If you're looking for archives, you can find them at kpbs.org slash junkiepodcast. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I.